This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Good morning, and welcome to Score Values on 670 The Score. I'm Sean Anderson. Coming up on this week's show, we speak to James Ryan, president of Times for Homes, about homelessness in America, and you'll hear from former NFL player Kyle Turley on the benefits of CBD. Welcome into Score Values. I'm Sean Anderson, and today I'm joined by James Ryan, the president of Times for Homes. James, how are you? I'm well, Sean, and yourself. Thanks for having us. Glad to have you. I'm good. And I want to start off with Time for Homes. How did you get involved with this? Sure. So, we founded Time for Homes um, sort of early on last year, right after we saw what was about to happen with the pandemic. Um, so we formed in April um, out of the need to change something, right? With At the time, there were studies showing that 30 uh, million American families would be facing housing insecurity for the first time. And I think everyone's realized that that's probably a low number by this point. Um, for the past you know, five or six decades, we've had a sort of war on poverty, um, trying to eradicate homelessness. And we've really achieved, you know, very few of our overarching goals in that time. We spent billions of dollars um, and helped individuals and families to be sure, but we've not actually, you know, improved that safety net to keep people from falling into homelessness in the first place. We're getting them out of homelessness if they if they fall into that. Um, so what we're doing is working on a policy level to draw from the existent data, use data science techniques to kind of extrapolate what's a more realistic picture of what's going on and working with dozens of academics from across the country and a variety of sub-disciplines um, to really hone in on what those critical issues are that are kind of upstream from where we're currently making an intervention to try to make it a little bit more effective and efficient. And you talk about those critical issues. I know one of your uh, goals is to seek and, and to find the root causes of homelessness. What, what do you, would you say, at least since you know this has only been a, an organization since April, what, what are the main causes that you can identify today? Um, so, there, so there's a number of main causes, but really the most critical issue that we, that we face is a lack of affordable housing stock um, right across the country. And you know, Chicago or Illinois is no different. Um, for example, in Chicago, this was June 2019, by the way. So it's a little bit out, out of date. And this past year, obviously, with the pandemic, has thrown these numbers a little bit out of whack. But in order to basically be able to afford rental housing in Chicago, the housing wage would have been 
$23.31 an hour. So you'd have to make $23.31 an hour in order to literally be able to afford housing at that 30% or under threshold, um, which is kind of established as the traditional amount there. And obviously with minimum wage, we're trying to get to you know $15. And at the time of, of that study, minimum wage in, in Illinois was uh, $8.25 an hour. Um, so income, making sure people can afford housing and that the actual housing stock exists. Um, so there's a number of sort of fixes there in terms of zoning laws, making sure that they're not too onerous in terms of requirements. Um, some some municipalities like in you know more suburban, especially more affluent areas have minimum lot sizes of you know up to five acres. Um, and that's just not compatible with the amount of people we have, the, their housing needs, et cetera. So we just really need to make sure that we're being fair to everyone across the board while we're still trying to you know, respect our communities and make sure everyone feels um, valued. And, and you mentioned Chicago. Uh, I know you guys are based out of New York. Um, you had a stat on your website, 92,000 people are homeless in New York. Um, looking at the, the issue that you just mentioned and, and the, mm-hmm. the, the, the main route, how, how do you see at least in New York, how is it easy or how would you guys go about um, solving that issue there? Is it, is it, are you guys going to tackle it state by state? Or are you guys going to just try to do it on a national level? Um, what, what's the, sure. the process? So our, our current plan um, is to, starting in January of next year, have some pilot projects on the ground throughout New York. We're working with a variety of communities, um, sort of negotiating what that might look like. Um, and we're hoping to tackle it statewide after that pilot project. So about a year down the line. Um, we're talking about things such as restorative justice, keeping people from going into the criminal justice system, you know, if that's appropriate. Um, it's a pretty good indicator or determinant of housing insecurity. Um, for example, we're working with them to ensure that their zoning laws are fair, um, that they have a decent economic sort of situation between minimum wage, economic recovery efforts, which are you know even more important now than they would have been um, with this pandemic, make sure that um, the resources there for homeless students, um, one of the largest growing uh, sort of demographics of homelessness um, are you know students in the K through 12 system that are homeless. Um, it's pretty incredible. It's like up to 30%. Um, the sort of nationwide stat on that is one in 30 youth, which does include up to 24 um, experience homelessness at least one time in any given year. If you kind of extrapolate that out, that's enough people to populate the entire city of Chicago that's in the a, course of a year. That, that, that's a hor- horrific number. Uh, we're speaking with James Ryan, uh, president of Times for Homes. You can visit them at timeforhomes.org. That is uh, time for numeral four homes.org. Um, to, to, to go off of that, you mentioned minimum wage. Um, you mentioned the, the rising number uh, of youth homelessness. Um, is, is homelessness a number that is currently rising because of the pandemic? And before the pandemic, was this a number that was rising as well? I think on your website, you listed about 500,000 people are homeless in the United States. Is that a number that pre-pandemic, when you guys were starting this, was that a number that was rising? That was. Um, so that number that we list, and you'll find kind of across the board in organizations um, is from something called the point in time count. Um, HUD, the Department of um, Housing and Urban Development, uh, sort of stipulates if you get federal funding, 
you have to take part in this thing where it's basically a census of homeless people. The problem with it, and it's widely acknowledged as a problem, is it's a one-day, one-time thing with generally untrained volunteers going out and counting in late January. As you can imagine, if you're homeless, you're probably going to try to find a way to keep warm at night in late January, um, especially if you're you know, in Chicago, New York, or whatnot, which has the elevated homeless populations to begin with. So it's um, very much an undercounting, but it unfortunately, it's the best baseline we have. Um, and in some areas, year to year, you see a bit of improvement, but overall, we're not making the progress we need to make. Um, and certainly the effects of the pandemic are just exacerbating that situation. Um, you know, the CDC extended the eviction moratorium until the end of March, and that's a great stopgap measure, right? It keeps a lot of people from being evicted. Not everyone, people are still being evicted either, you know, through the legal process or illegally. Um, and that's one issue. But the other issue is when that moratorium expire or is allowed to expire, um, all that rent is still due, right? Just because <laughs> just because it's April 1st or whatever it ends up being doesn't mean you're going to be able to pay, you know, a year's worth of back rent. Um, so we're definitely going to see a massive crunch there in terms of what resources are available. Um, obviously, many organizations are working on trying to find a solution to this, working with um, politicians to get adequate funding to make that happen. Um, but right now, that's the sort of biggest worry on the horizon. Um, a recent study came out showing that, you know, just in New York alone, we're expecting about a 45% increase in homelessness over the next year due to the pandemic. Um, and according to HUD's uh, point in time count, we have, you know, 92, 93,000 people. Um, so that's a lot of people, a lot of families, a lot of lives that are being affected. Yeah, that's a number that looks like it could reach 100,000, unfortunately. Um, you, you mentioned, though, on your website, your vision is to eradicate homelessness by 2035. Um, what, why is that a realistic year? Why is 2035 uh, a year? Sure. And it does sound <laughs> it does sound like we've bought, bitten off a bit more than anyone can chew. And to be sure, we can't it, go it if, alone. If you um, succeed, though, no one's going to be mad. No, of course not. Um, and if we get close, I don't think anyone's going to be really mad either. Mm -hmm. um, we just have a little bit more work to do. We do want to put ourselves out of business, though, by then. Um, the reason it's doable, right, is so and why we're starting in New York it plays into this. Um, so New York State has obviously New York City, this very dense metropolitan area, but also has Rust Belt cities, small towns, villages, rural areas with more cows than people. So if we can make something work kind of across the board here, it's something that can be packaged up and brought elsewhere. So we really only need to do a few of these um, sort of courses of pilot projects to get the data and evidence necessary to bring these elsewhere. Um, obviously, it'll take some convincing and whatnot. So it's not going to be an overnight thing, right? You're not, we're not going to look at it in December of 2022 and say, hey, we succeeded here. This is the end all be all solution it will work and january 1 not everyone's going to implement it right um it'll take a lot of a lot of work to get there um but it is possible right we have we already sort of know what the things that need to happen are the problem is um as we've as a society been dealing with these issues is it's been done on a piecemeal approach um so what we need to do now is work on it at a more comprehensive level and see how these sort of disparate systems interface with each other. Um, how if we do something over here for 
uh, homeless students. What does that mean for homeless families, you know, over here down the road a month or two? Um, and by doing these, these uh, pilot projects, we're able to take that data, use it to indicate what some trends are, um, look at it to highlight what issues might be, et cetera, to kind of get it, get in front of those things and be a little bit more proactive rather than reactive, which is unfortunately how most organizations are handling this right now, um, which is not really a kind of fault of their own um, thing. It's just how the, how the system has been sort of designed over the years. And uh, something I want to uh, push on, or not push on, but go a little bit deeper with mm -hmm. is sure. the fact of starting uh, an organization like this in a pandemic. Uh, what, what has that been like uh, with for you guys? W was it tougher than you expected? Is it, you know, what you expected? What's what's it been like? Um, in some ways, it's been better than we hoped. In others, it's not been so great. Um, so the one I guess the two areas of silver lining of this pandemic, and I really hate to <laughs> say that there's any really, um, but the sort of adoption of video conferencing technology, it's allowed us to reach more people, have more you know, in-depth conversations, bring more people on board than we would have if we had to pay for travel per se, right? Or the, just the time and expense of getting places to see people. Um, the other is we've seen a lot more people interested in this topic than we would have expected and that I've seen, you know, kind of previous in my career. Um, with everyone sort of having being a little bit closer to an exposure to housing insecurity, people are more willing to, I think at this point, look at it, see where their role is in it, what they might be able to, you know, contribute, et cetera. The downside of it, um, besides obviously the human factor is, organizations that you know provide funding um, at the beginning of the pandemic and for a while we're a little bit slower to do so um, in, individual giving as a trend has been depressed um, in general but this year well, last year too um, has been worse um, due to the pandemic um, so funding is a is a major obstacle at this point you're listening to score values here on 670 the score we're speaking with james ryan president of times for homes james you mentioned um funding um obviously and, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier in the interview as well um you know we've, this is a problem that we've thrown billions and billions of dollars at and yet we still haven't been able to eradicate homelessness um why isn't it as simple as you know just putting enough money into uh homelessness uh, wouldn't eradicate it right if, if you had everybody pitch in you had government help government funding um why isn't that enough um well it sort of is it's just that we're not applying it in an efficient manner um, so going back a few years, there was a small pilot done in Hawaii where they used a um, legislative waiver in order to use Medicare Medicaid funding to prescribe housing for chronically homeless individuals and provide for them case management. What they were seeing prior to that is the same individuals, you know, hundreds of people going to the ER frequently. Um, one, I think, was up to 300 times in the year. Now, as you can imagine, an ER visit isn't super cheap. The average visit for that uh, hospital or whatever was about $4,000 every time someone was in before the cost of medication, just literally being there. Um, and they would go for issues where you and I would just run to CVS, Walgreens, Dwayne Reed, whatever, and pick up something over the counter and stay home for a couple of days. But unfortunately they don't have that opportunity, right? Um, so by doing this, they decrease the amount of 
hospital visits by over 86%. Um, they realized a multi-million dollars a year savings by not paying for those visits, but paying for a case manager. And they saw improved outcomes, both health outcomes. These people got healthier. They didn't have the same conditions. And in terms of getting them out of chronic homelessness, they were able to achieve housing security. They were able to get any sort of mental health disorders under control for the most part. Uh, many of them were able to get jobs or at least go through the, the system to get you know, disability assistance or what, whatever that appropriate for that individual. Um, so it's not a matter of we're not spending enough. It's a matter of we're not doing so wisely. Um, we're putting money where it looks good for the politicians often. Um, and the government is, you know, kind of disincentivized to help. They want to make it look like there's less homelessness than there really is. Um, so it doesn't get the funding or the attention it necessarily deserves. Um, and that's sort of where we talked about earlier with the point in time count. You know, it's sort of intentionally, maybe not maliciously, but intentionally underreports the problem. And, and you mentioned government trying to hide the, the the issue of homelessness. And one of the things that I think most people either see or possibly ignore when they're just walking around their city are these deterrents for homelessness, uh, for homeless people uh, to either lay down, try to find shelter um, in a, you know, a public setting. Um, when you when you see stuff like that and, and, and you see um, people not being able to find shelter uh, in their own city, um, what, what, what does that make you feel? Because I, I think I saw a post where you wrote about, um, you know, homelessness and, and, and you, you wrote about some of these deterrents. Um, what, what's the, the negative to that? I mean, what does that mean for when a homeless person sees a bench that has um, yeah. a, a double arm rest in the middle and they're not able to lie across it? Yeah. So the sort of hostile architecture that you mentioned goes hand in hand with um, municipalities, not just in recent years, but it's been a thing for a while now of criminalizing poverty, literally making it illegal to say, sit on a sidewalk or get some rest or whatnot. Um, and cities do this in order to move the homeless population away, specifically away from the more affluent centers, the more um, central business districts away from where maybe tourists would go, depending on the city, um, to make it look cleaner, more presentable, right? Like putting forward the best face possible. Um, you saw after, you know, Hurricane Katrina, they kind of moved people out of that area, they bust them, and then they left them. They didn't try to bring them back to their community, to the people that they knew who maybe could offer that support. Um, I remember when I was a kid seeing this, um, as a we had, as a family, just moved to Atlanta um, just prior to the Olympics in 96. And we saw basically a similar thing. They literally bust out homeless people so they wouldn't be around. Um, and many um, cities take on this sort of approach. Hey, if we can get them out of here, we don't have to worry about it. If we don't see them, they don't exist. Um, and it's just really frustrating because these are people more often than not, you know, roughly 50% of homeless people have a college degree or at least some college, right? These are not <laughs> really what you necessarily picture of what their, might, their backgrounds might be. Um, and we're just pushing them away from the communities where they might have a chance to reintegrate um, and bring them places that they don't know. Or in some places, the ticket for loitering um, or vagrancy is $500. So, you know, if you're homeless, you definitely don't have $500 to pay to just exist, right? You've got other issues. And they'll put them in jail for a number of days to, quote, pay off that amount. Um, 
it's just frustrating because we're doing all of these things when we could take that effort, that money, and help these people get back into society in a stable position. And I bet it's frustrating too, because one of the things that you mentioned, uh, one of the positives was the fact that people, you know, because now with the pandemic, they're getting closer to homelessness or, um, Mm -hmm. you know, they they start to uh, empathize more with uh, people who are are without a home, yet, you know, these politicians, still people, they they really can be cruel with with, with how they treat the homeless. Um, How how has it been working with local and and, and national municipalities um, and trying to improve uh, the life of homelessness uh, with your organization? Um, So far, across the board, the response has been positive. Everyone at least wants to pay lip service to the idea of fixing this issue. The problem is it's not, not the thing that gets them votes. The, you know, homeless people by and large are disenfranchised. Either they don't have ID, it's hard to register to vote wherever they are. Um, and it's just frankly not a major concern. So because they're you know, functionally disenfranchised, um, politicians don't have an incentive for trying to help them, right? There's no one lobbying on their behalf. Um, it's just this marginalized and underrepresented community. That said, um, politicians are realizing more and more that this is an issue that will affect more people and that it, is something in the national consciousness. Um, so seeing a little bit more, at least interest, um, hesitant to say, uh, you know, true partnership or um, commitments at this time. Um, but there's reason to be optimistic. James Ryan, president of Time for Homes. Uh, two more questions here, James. Uh, with government uh, in, in mind uh, and, and also with COVID, um, what is vaccine rollout like for the homelessness right now? <laughs> well, I'm not sure how it is out in Chicago, but if it's anything like here in New York, even though we have, you know, these sort of ambitious, great plans, um, it's seemingly disorganized across the board. The supply is minimal at best, um, and the the rollout is hard for most people to figure out on their own, right? They don't know what group they're in often. They don't know where they're supposed to be going, et cetera. And homeless people are at even more disadvantaged. Um, while most homeless people have a cell phone or something, they're using Wi-Fi occasionally and they can only get power, you know, when they can be inside a library or something, which is harder now during the pandemic. Um, so they're kind of out of the loop in general and the lack of clear communication with, you know, timelines and this is what you need to do and when is only making it worse for this group. Um, obviously they've been amongst those hit hardest over the course of the pandemic and have the least access to healthcare. Absolutely. Um, t- James, how can people find you guys? How can they help out? And, uh, and, and uh, what's, what's, what's the best way for people to get involved with uh, Time for Homes? So we're pretty easy to find timeforhomes.org or we can be reached um, by telephone 518-364-6977. The best way someone can help out is to get involved. Um, if I was new to this and wanted to to, t- to play a part, I would go to some of our um, community workshops, which are offered virtually at this moment, um, dealing with issues such as uh, poverty eradication, um, youth homelessness, et cetera, and learn more about them and more about what I can do to help, you know, influence some systemic change in this area. If someone is feeling generous and has the ability to, obviously donations are always accepted, 
But the biggest thing is to get involved and not ignore this issue. Um, and if you don't have time to volunteer or do workshops, at least when you see a homeless person in the street, you know, give them some sort of a greeting. Um, you know, let them feel that dignity of being a person rather than just something to be avoided. James, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Sean. Next on Score Values, you will hear from former NFL offensive lineman Kyle Turley. Kyle joined the scores Mike Mulligan and David Hall to discuss how medical cannabis saved his life. Oh, there's just no doubt about it. There's you know no conclusion. I mean, when you're at your wit's end and you've got about 20 pharmaceuticals, that you're looking at these pill bottles on your counter that you're just uh, unbelievably terrified of for the last 20 years, and you just can't get off them. And you're not an, you don't feel like you're an addict because you're not taking 14 a day, uh, you know, of one of each pill like some of your friends are. Uh, but you're still experiencing these side effects, and then. You know, me personally, I had a lot of neurological issues. Um, these neurological issues are very real, and they are consistent in our community. And these things surfaced early on for me. I'm, you know, stay connected with the retired player community, and a lot of these guys are experiencing the things uh, now that I experienced like 10 years ago. You know, I was on this accelerated path neurologically, it seems, to be able to know what this is and talk about it. And, you know, God's put me in a real interesting position in life always, and I always take full advantage of it, that's for sure, and, uh, you know, try to stay on uh, that path of keeping one foot in front of the other and uh, trusting and um, in the process. And, you know, when, when you're, you know, in a parking lot, contemplating suicide, you're, you've got vertigo constantly, light sensitivity constantly, you're thinking about, you know, really bad things about everybody around you and everyone in your circle from your family to your friends is a, a potential, you know, paranoia scenario of a threat and what they're trying to do to you in your life. I mean, that's just not a way to live, especially when you got everything, you know. And uh, cannabis came, you know, right down as the hand of God after I got down on my knees and begged for another opportunity. You know, it's, it's a tremendous story, Kyle, and you have courage in stepping forward and telling it consistently. And, and, I, and I wonder when you look at, you know, the, the audience and how receptive the league and players in the league now may be to it, do you look at last March, I think it was, when there was a new CBA ratified and it included uh, maybe a, a drug policy that was softer or more understanding where players would no longer be suspended for positive marijuana tests. There's been other strides that have been made. Do you see that as a slow acceptance of the things that you're talking about, about the value of cannabis with no longer attaching the stigma that we are so used to attaching to it? Yeah, you know, that's happening. And uh, it's the key word there, unfortunately, is slow. You know, I mean, I've, I've been the guy to go kick the door down. I'm not going to sit on the sidelines when I've discovered something that is unbelievably important to, you know, our community as football community and just the, the humanity in general. You know, we're being preyed upon by these opiate companies and these pharmaceutical companies like nobody's business, man. And they're killing people by the millions. And this plan is saving lives. It saved my life saved my partner's lives. That's why I'm working on this pro project that you guys are letting me on here for with Ricky Williams and Jim McMahon, great Chicago Bear. I mean, to see him take the sunglasses off right now and be a, uh, in, in the community and just, I mean, just look at, go YouTube his acceptance, you know, of his Hall of Fame induction at BYU. The things that are happening in this guy's life where he's able to now 
be, uh, you know, there and present when, you know, and pill free. Are you kidding me? With all the plates and screws and everything that we all collectively have in our bodies, Ricky Williams, myself, Jim, Evan Britton, covering about 50 years of NFL football there. And for all of us to have this experience and then be spreading this around our community for the last five years and this knowledge and seeing these lives change. It's nothing better, man. It's a great experience, and it's unfortunate it's just a slow rollout. That was former NFL lineman Kyle Turley with the scores Mike Mulligan and David Haw. You can catch Mulligan Hall weekday mornings at 5 a.m. on 670 The Score. If there's a topic you'd like to hear about on a future edition of our show, or if you'd like to share information about an upcoming charitable event, send us an email at scorevalues670 at gmail.com. That's scorevalues670 at gmail.com. I'm Sean Anderson, and thanks for listening to this week's edition of Score Values on 670 The Score. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.